Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Hey, everyone. Uh, Todd here. Welcome back to the Outdoor Feast podcast. I'm excited to be talking to outdoor writer Kristen Schmidt from Northern New York this week on the podcast. But before we get into that, my good friend Mark Norquist is here. Mark, how are you? Doing well, Todd. Uh, Great to catch up. Uh, It is swinging down to the last days of October, which go way too quickly. Um, You know, we were talking earlier, you've been out duck hunting with a friend, watching those birds and bird dogs work. And um, sounds like we're, you know, we're coming into November. You have some plans for deer hunting? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, we just, uh, it was out last week in Western Minnesota. I was supposed to be out in North Dakota with uh, my brothers and some some friends the week before, but wasn't able to make it happen. And uh, I think actually the Western Minnesota hunt I did last week, just a day trip. It was probably as good as anything. We uh, we almost limited out by uh, by about eight thirty in the morning, which was which is great with a with a great mixed bag of, of different kinds of birds. But yeah, next week is is a rifle opener for for deer here in Minnesota, and uh, temps are dropping, and uh, hopefully the the bucks are getting feisty and and looking forward to to doing the usual tradition uh, that we have in our family head up to the hunting shack and gather with with family and some close friends and and hit the woods how about you yeah that all sounds amazing um and uh deer season's in full swing here in new york as well in the northern zone where i'm located we have a seven-week rifle season, usually starts the third week of October, runs through the first weekend of December. And um, yeah, November is um, an incredible time for deer hunting here in northern New York. And so uh, I've got a week off coming up around Thanksgiving. And uh, this year, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to deer hunt as much as I usually do, but I'm really looking forward to that Thanksgiving week hunt. And uh, anything can happen, you know, that time of year. So it's exciting and I'm looking forward to it. Are you, uh, are you going to get out with your dad at all? I remember that picture from last year, that buck he got, which was just, it was great. Yeah, definitely. He's, uh, he's been sitting, I think he's probably been out sitting before dark, you know, pretty close to home. And I definitely will plan to spend some time with him around Thanksgiving. And if we can, uh, if we can get out sooner than that, you know, certainly will. I, I am, uh, I don't know if I told you this, but I'm, I'm mentoring in a, uh, hunters of color um, mentoring hunt coming up on uh, November 11th through the 14th. Yeah, you and did mention that. Yeah, so we've got I think seven or eight hunters. Uh, we're partnering with New York BHA. We're partnering with the Nature Conservancy. Um, so really excited about that. Um, that's going to be a wonderful weekend, and uh, can't wait to spend a few days in the woods with a new hunter. So yeah, look forward um, to hearing hearing how that hunt goes. We'll keep you posted. Yeah, we'll keep you posted. November, deer hunting just doesn't get any better. So um, we'll keep everyone posted on that. And, you know, this conversation um, this week with Kristen, I'm really excited about. So a little bit of background for her. Uh, She's an outdoor writer, and she recently did a piece in USA Today uh, featuring Randy Newberg. We all know Randy, um, you know, from, uh, I think it's fresh tracks or whatever his show is. 
And so she did a feature article with him. She's been around outdoor writing for a long time. Uh, she's originally from, I think, the Detroit, Michigan area. Um, and then she moved, her husband and her moved to Vermont and um, and then moved up to northern New York. And she talks about all of that on the podcast episode. And it's kind of a cool lifestyle podcast episode. We're talking from everything about, you know, uh, challenges for people with young kids getting out to hunt. Um, to raising chickens, to just having an outdoor lifestyle and being, you know, having um, agency with your food. So, um, yeah, everything in between. She's amazing. And I'm really grateful uh, to have Kristen on the podcast. Yeah, it's interesting. Usually those people from uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota head west. She did the opposite. Yeah, she did the opposite. She uh, she settled in um, in Western Vermont, only about an hour from where I'm located. Uh, so they were there, and now they're up in um, a beautiful part of New York along the St. Lawrence River. It's up in uh, St. Lawrence County. It's the biggest county in New York State. Uh, there's some amazing outdoor opportunities as far as fishing and hunting and just lifestyle opportunities up there. It's right along what we call the St. Lawrence Seaway. Um, so they're in a, a really cool place. Um, and, uh, it's a, it's a fun conversation. I look forward to, uh, to listening to it here. Well, let's get into it. And so keep me posted on your deer hunting in Minnesota and for everybody out there listening, be safe in the woods, have fun. And, uh, as always, thanks for supporting and listening to us. Hey, Kristen Schmidt, welcome to the Outdoor Feast podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here with you. So you're in Northern New York and I'm in Northern New York and it's almost October. Um, how's the foliage up your way right now? Is, uh, are the leaves starting to turn? Yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm four hours North of you. I'm on the other side of the Adirondacks. So, um, yeah, we have some colors starting a lot of green still though. How about you? Same. Yeah, same here. Um, the red maples are starting to turn a little bit. So mm -hmm. I was in the woods uh, this weekend for a couple of hours. Uh, grouse season opened up on the 20th. Um, I'm in grad school right now on top of work, so I don't get to hunt very much. But I did slip out for a few hours. Wow. And um, around like boggy areas, the, the red maples are really vibrant and beautiful. Um, so uh, I would say that we are maybe... 30% to peak. We are definitely not anywhere close to um, having a lot of foliage. We had a lot of rain this fall, uh, summer. Things are still pretty green. Yeah, same, same. I'm not going to complain. I mean, I love fall. It's my favorite season, but I'm not ready for winter. So yeah, <laughs> same here. It'll, it'll be here quick enough. And so how long have you been in the Northeast? Oh, geez. Um, well, we were in I'm from uh, the Detroit, Michigan area, uh, Southeast Michigan, uh, is where both my husband and I are both from. So all of our families are there. Um, in August 2012, we decided to jump ship and we moved from there to Vermont. And we were in Vermont uh, in like the Rutland County area. Um, we were there for about four or five years. Uh, and then we moved to northern New York in 2016. So late 2016. So we've been up here longer than we were in Vermont, actually, I guess, at this point. So yeah, I'm nice. A now. I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah. All right. That sounds good. Uh, that's cool. So and, and what drew you to Vermont from Michigan? Oh, gosh. Um, well, we were pretty much uh, in a money pit 
Uh, our house was a 1922 Tudor. Um, it sounds really great and grand. Uh, it was just crumbling and we bought it in order to like, you know, make a profit, fix it up and eventually sell it. But we did that right before the housing crisis in uh, 2008. And we had really uh, stretched ourselves thin getting into that house. Uh, and we bought it from this widower uh, who had just turned it into this blue and white uh, kitschy, uh, I don't even know. It was just very, every room had to be redone. Um, not, not just because it was crumbling, but just, uh, you know, moldy carpet and everything. And so we were kind of stretched thin and I wasn't hundred percent happy with my job. I worked in corporate America and I worked at a law firm and I love my immediate, uh, coworker who I'm still very much friends with, but it was the rest of the gig. And the fact that we had a younger uh, daughter, she was born in 2008 and, um, you know, she was being shuttled to daycare so I could work. And my husband was an adjunct at that time and he was teaching about eight classes at four different colleges. So he would be gone from, you know, six in the morning until 10 o'clock at night. And then I'd be working the nine to five job when picking the kid up at daycare. And it was just, it was just too much. Um, so we decided to, guess, have a fresh start and... We both, we decided that whoever got the job, um, we would go to that place. It was just a, like, you know, so we were both applying for jobs. Uh, I didn't really want to stay in uh, what I was doing, which was legal marketing. But if I had found a job first, that was just, that was what we were going to do. And I did uh, interview at a couple of different places. Uh, one was in Tennessee. Another one was in Florida. We were just basically applying anywhere that there was something. Um, and then he found the job at Vermont. Uh, it was a small liberal arts college that's actually unfortunately closed now, which is why that prompted our move from Vermont to Northern New York. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that he got that job and I didn't get the job because he really enjoys academics and he likes academia. Uh, he's, you know, really good at what he does. And it gave me kind of a career flip and also a parent flip, I guess, if you could say, because, you know, we took our kid out of daycare um, and I got the chance to kind of be a mom for the first time and really like experience that. And she was three at the time. So she doesn't really have the memories of daycare necessarily that I do, obviously, from taking her there. So I've been, you know, basically the primary caregiver and also being able to work on what he, he was always very supportive of my writing, but it wasn't until we moved to Vermont that I was able to really transition to that um, because I had the time and there's not a lot of legal marketing jobs in Vermont. So, you know, that's, that's what did, that's what did it for us. So no one understood, of course, in our families, why we wanted to just, you know, move from everything we know to something we don't, especially going from city life to uh, it's a very small house at the end of a dirt road surrounded by, you know, uh, uh, eight acres of woods. And I mean, I didn't either, but it sounded like a good change. And uh, it, it has been, I mean, I, I don't regret, I don't regret it in a minute. And I don't think he does either. Actually, we both have said so many times how, you know, it's like that first move really is what makes you, you know, realize that you can do it. You can just, you don't have to, follow the same path everyone thinks you should. And I think that that's really important. 
It, it is really important. That's a great story and a great path, Kristen, and a great segue. And I have to say, you know, you're talking about your your home that had a lot of character um, that needed some work. And, uh, you know, there's this thing where uh, my wife and I are from the Adirondacks. Quick story. We moved back here. I was living in PA for many years working. We moved back in 05 and um, the housing market was really strong back then. But we found this beautiful house that we really wanted and it had all sorts of character and it was this old farmhouse and it had artsy colors, but it had a brook running through the basement. <laughs> and we're like, and we're like, you know what? This is just a little too much character for us. Like we could see that this might be like, you know, exactly what we want artistically, but um, maybe we should shy away from that place. <laughs> So we found another place, uh, but you know it's funny anyway. Um, yeah, you don't so, have that much water in your basement. <laughs> no, no, we get get enough water in our basement here in the Adirondacks, uh, you know, without having a creek in it, trout stream. So um, yeah, so what was it? Like then when you got to Vermont, um, you know, Vermont is such a cool place to live. And so where I am in New York, um, we're, we're closer to Rutland, say, than we are to Burlington. So if you just go across uh, the south end of Lake Champlain, we're in Rutland in about an hour. Such a cool vibe, um, such a local scene. Um, what was your like perspective around Vermont and the lifestyle there? Did you did you enjoy that? Uh, yeah. I mean, like, so right before we moved, we were... Um we, we have some food sensitivities in our family. So I was really getting into researching that. And so moving from like a city place where like my, I actually bought a, a half of a cow when I lived in the city and, you know, my husband went and picked it up in a freezer and like, it was all processed and everything, but like, you don't even do that there. Um, and, and so like moving to Vermont, there was like that, Oh, suddenly yeah, everyone does this here. Like, this is what you do. Or you find like the, you know, the local, the local guy, and you do it that way. And I still do it here. Actually, I have a really wonderful farm that I buy all of our meats from here in, in Northern New York, because I love that direct relationship. But so that was like my main thing, I think, right away is realizing that like, we weren't like strange in, in wanting to eat more naturally, have more connection uh, to the food. And, and so the first place we lived, we actually rented from um, a really nice uh, couple uh, she taught yoga <laughs> and, and, he, and had this giant, giant uh, garden that was like in sections. I mean, it was like one of those things where like it was like the garden was bigger than our house. And then they had chickens. And that was my first like foray into like, oh, I'm going to have to get chickens. But we were renting. So we had to wait until we bought a place. And so we bought a place. And um, that was the first thing we did. We got chickens and tilled up like a 50 by 60 garden. And that was like, you know, going from no gardening experience to just let's let's do it. Let's see what happens. And um yeah and it, and it went really well and, and we had chickens and ducks and uh, it was just it was it was it was I, I hate to say it but like it was just like you know exactly what I was looking for without realizing I was looking for it I guess um I, I think I get it yeah yeah because I, I mean I, I didn't grow up in like the outdoors um I had like a suburban childhood chain link fence uh, I didn't like going outside much. Uh, and then suddenly you're like, you know, in Vermont and it's like, well, and you have this little kid with you that's like super into like frogs and nature just because it's her personality. And so, you know, you're going on these walks and stuff all the time. And like, you know, you're getting out more than you are used to. And you just, you, your comfort level becomes 
that you get more comfortable and everything. And so, and I became like the chicken person, like I love chickens. And now that we are at this new place and I have space again, next in the spring, my husband's like, you're getting chickens. You have to get them because <laughs> I mean, like they're just, they're my favorite thing. I love roosters. Um, I hand raised a rooster in our house cause he wasn't doing well. And he lived in a dog crate for some time until he found his voice. And then he had to move out. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. I, it's definitely, if you knew me when I was younger, you knew me in college and, you know, I was like going downtown Detroit, going to I'll see all these bands play and I still love that scene, but I, I can't imagine doing it now versus how I am now with like, I'd rather be outside and um, enjoy like the calmer side of stuff, I guess, than just being on like all the time. Yeah. Very cool. I think I get that. Yeah. Same here. And uh, what, what kind of chickens do you like? Uh, do you get like laying chickens or? Yeah. They... yeah laying mm-hmm. chickens, but I like the ones that are like funny and like heritage breed. <laughs> <laughs> I had bantams and I had Polish and I had Americana. I want the ones that are like the, what is it? Ani Siani that are all the all black ones. I, I like, I like variety. Yeah. But the Polish one though, because they have that big poof on their head. They look cool, right? I, so I'm with you. So like when I was growing up, uh, my my dad and stepmom they weren't hardcore farmers, but we had a big garden and it, like so we they they had um, always a couple dozen chickens, you know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I just grew up around that. That was my lifestyle growing up here in the Adirondacks. And so they would get um, these Rhode Island red chickens, mm-hmm. which were like the burnt orange colored ones. And I can remember they would get them like they'd buy them in the mail from Iowa or something like that. So they like, we, we had this incubator in the chicken coop, which Mm -hmm. was like, you know, we'd keep them warm when they were chicks, but they'd come in the mail in a box. Like the UPS driver would come and it was this box that had holes in it, you know, so they were doing good. And there'd always be like um, two dozen Rhode Island red chicks and then like a rooster who's going to develop its own character and you just don't know what this thing is. And so like always like the two dozen ch- the hens mm-hmm. and then the one rooster that, you know, was always a little bit, uh, you know, crazy, but uh, added some character to the to the chicken coop. Oh, yeah. um, so it was nice. Yeah, we had um, and what my dad did along with the Rhode Island re- uh, Reds is he had um, barred rocks, too, which are like the yeah. black and white ones. Yeah, and so. Yeah. So we had them like rotating in two different chicken coops. So we had like two different, like we had two, like one or two year olds. And then we'd always have chicks coming in, you know, so like we were always constantly rotating through. Um, So it's kind of a cool lifestyle. I like it a lot. Our friends still have chickens. So like we don't have chickens now, but what um, what we do have is like friends with chickens. So (laughs) like we have a friend. It might be the bat. That might be better because it's like friends, you know, yeah. Friends with chickens. You don't have to actually take care of them, but they want to give you eggs. Exactly. So this is exactly how this rolls. So we get uh, all the the fresh eggs that we want and then they have chickens and we get to go visit the chickens. So we have like visitation rights on them. And I think it's a pretty good arrangement. They only live a couple miles down the road. So um, our daughter can go visit. She can, you know, play with them, pick them up and pet them and do all the things you like to do. And it just seems like it's a pretty good arrangement for us. So it's good stuff. Um, so did you, so you're in Northern New York and, you know, did, would you say, let's talk a little bit about writing and so forth. So when you were in legal marketing, um, had you been writing, um, on the side for a long time before that, or did that all occur when you made the transition, um, out of the corporate world? 
Well, I mean, you do a lot of writing and a marketing job. So I did all that stuff, but I did creative writing for myself um, during that time. Um, and obviously in college, you know, there's always the really bad novel you write and then you shelve and no one else will ever read. I have one of those. Um, <laughs> actually, <laughs> I actually met my husband in a creative writing class. So yeah, I've been, I've been doing writing and, and, you know, it, it's like one of those jobs that like when you're a kid, it's like, yeah, I'm going to be a writer. It's like, sure you are. <laughs> Cause you just like, you're going to just, all you're just going to sit down and you're just going to like pen this amazing thing like the books you've read as a kid like you're gonna be you know like in my my mind like the next Beverly Cleary look at me I'm writing this and you know it's like yeah you know, Stephen King had to work hard you know he, he doesn't have to work as hard now but he, yeah it wasn't like a roadmap where someone just said look follow along and here we go and especially now I think because there's so many people out there that have been successful um it makes it harder I think to make yourself stand out and uh, really you know, even new writers like novelists and stuff, you really have to be different because like, you know, the story has been told 80 different ways already, you know? So. Yeah, I can, I can see that. And so you'd mentioned Beverly Cleary, but um, like if you had to pick a couple of different authors that like influenced you, that you really like their books or their style, who, yeah. who is it that really speaks to you? Well, I really, uh, I really love Ann Packer. Um, the Dive from Clausen's Pure is like my go-to book when you just don't know what else you want to read. Uh, I can open it anywhere and I can read it. And she's, that's really old. And she's a really wonderful writer. Um, her character portrayals are, I think, why I like her so much. Um, I used to read, uh, gosh, a lot of like off stuff. I can't even remember the. I was, uh, the author is right now. I read Jen Lancaster is um, as a memoirist. I really like her. Um, very snarky um, and talented, though. I mean, just and funny. And so again, like if you just want a comfort read, that is who I always turn to. I have all of her books. Um, and like in my in my field and like what I'm doing right now, I'm really I'm really liking Tana French. Um, her books are really dense. Uh, it's not a fast read, but the description and the plot development is insane and good. Um, gosh, you know, my bookshelf is at the other house. I can't scan it right now. Um, but And I love um, Audrey Niffenegger's books, uh, My Fearful Symmetry and uh, Time Traveler's Wife. Again, just her writing is, is stellar. It's spot on. You know what I like about talking to people that like books is that you know, I like to read and I think I know a lot of authors and books, but every time I talk to somebody about their favorite books, like you're just introducing me to all these cool people. I've not read that much on at all. You know what I mean? So it's, it's amazing <laughs> to hear all these names and to hear how you describe it and to hear like what you like about those authors. Um, because it's, um, I, like, I, I think through all that, like some of my favorite authors, if I had to pick one of my favorite authors, it's um, Louise Erdrich. Have you ever read her? She's um, I think I have, but not like extensively. Yeah. So she's in Minnesota and she wrote um, The Plague of Doves. She wrote The Roundhouse. Mm -hmm. um, she is um, part of the Ojibwe community. And um, her, her creativity around writing and her character development and her familiarity with 
pulling life out into a book is amazing. So like you're reading this and it seems like you're just sitting on the couch with this person. And mm-hmm. it's like, I just love that. And, um, and, and at the same time, she has this crazy metaphorical way of like, weaving all these big themes into her books. There are, there are a lot of outdoor nature kind of books and Ojibwe culture kind of books and exploring social themes. Um, yeah, Louise Erdrich's pretty cool. I like her. Have you ever read um, Dr. Anne Labastiel? She's a, she was oh, yeah. an Adirondacker. Okay, yes. Yeah. Of course. Woods Woman. Yes. We actually read it as a family. Uh, she's She's so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So her book Woods Woman sits on my shelf and it's like one of my all time favorites. Mm-hmm. I go back to that a lot. It's I love the fact. Well, I just love her, her legacy here in the Adirondacks and um, and her writing style mm-hmm. and her spirit. Um, it's all it's all really good. Um, it's good stuff. So there's always great books out there to read. And ha- so what would how would you describe um, your genre right now? Like what you're doing? And like how, how you approach writing and kind of like stylistically how you think about it. Okay. Well, sure. But I want to actually go back one, one second. Um, okay, good. So, so yeah. just, this is funny. So like when we moved to Vermont, uh, I actually, the, the copy of uh, Woods Woman I have from, I found it at like a secondhand bookstore and, you know, Detroit girl picks up this book. I think we were, we're looking for something for my daughter and I was like wandering the shelves and, that was the first time I ever read it, and I was just floored. And so uh, I started, you know, I read Woods Woman 1, 2, 3, 4. I read all of her books. I found some obscure book from that she autographed in uh, a bookstore here up in northern Michigan, or northern Michigan, northern New York. And, um, yeah, so I just think that, I think that reading her kind of also kind of pushed me towards going, you know, it's totally cool to be, um, like, older and getting into this, too. Because she wasn't like super young when she decided to do any of this stuff. In fact, I think that her story of like working and kind of having to work for her husband and like working in those hotels and stuff, it, it's not like it's like she had like this amazing experience. And, and I think it's kind of cool that instead of like taking on that what was me uh, thing, she instead went, well, you know what? I'm done with that. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so I like that, I think, propelled me a little bit, too. Um and so, like, I, I, I just I, I thought of that, and I just when you were talking about her, I'm like, yes, of course. And I really, I really love reading um, any outdoor, like anything that's a kind of adventure uh, memoir esque. I can't think of like specifics right now, but if I showed you a picture of my bookshelf, you would see that like I have two, you know, two or three shelves worthy of it. And I love, I love books like that that tell real stories of like grit, determination, but also have you know heart and spunk. So you actually like really care about the person that's going through these trials and tribulations. Yeah. Pulls you right into their humanity. Um, You know, I'm so glad you backed me up on Anne Labastille. So, you you know, for listeners out there, if maybe you're not in New York or the Adirondacks, but Anne Labastille wrote this series of books like Woods Woman books. And, you know, her story is one where now she was at Cornell, right? Was she, a, she was a doctor at Cornell maybe? I don't know, but she, she just like, yeah, like you're saying, like she was working in these um, hotels in the Adirondacks with her husband. And then um, she decided to build a remote cabin and live in the wilderness at this place called, I think she calls it Black Bear Lake or something yeah. like that. But her books chronicle 
her her life in this cabin and she it chronicles like her building the cabin mm-hmm. chronicles her living out there all winter long snowshoeing and snowmobiling back into old forge um it's like this great it it reminds me of like an, an Adirondack version of um you know that guy Dick Pronicky like up oh, in yeah. Alaska yep. it's like the same kind of thing it's awesome so it's just like um so it's like she's a really great nature writer and she's got this wilderness spirit and um and so I can see I'm I'm really glad that you like brought that up about like her influence and her spirit and how that kind of um kind of influenced you mm-hmm. and so how like uh and I and so I asked you about like you're kind of like what your genre is right now and kind of like how you're approaching things. But maybe like, let's just talk about like outdoors for a minute. So like you have written some really cool outdoors pieces and work and you recently, people might not know this, but like you recently did a piece for USA Today, right? Mm -hmm. For um, like interviewing Randy Newberg, which is really amazing. Guy's really good. He's a nice guy. He's such a great passionate conservationist. Um, how did that line up? How did you get connected with USA Today? Um, I've written for them for the last four or five years. Um, you know, you pitch to people, obviously, after write pitches. But then after a while, you 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 have relationships with the editors. Um, I think my uh, first big foray with them, though, aside from a couple like little side pieces, was uh, I wrote a cover story before Randy Newberg, guy on Remy Warren uh, for them uh, in 2017. And I think that one kind of, you know, made them realize that I, I was a pretty good fit for this type of uh, storytelling. Um, I like looking at it from a big picture. Like when I did Remy's, um, it wasn't just interviewing him. You know, I interviewed like his brother and some friends and you, know, you get these other stories, these other parts of it to really paint the, the full, full picture of, of who these people are, because obviously, yes, they're hunters and conservationists and everything, but they're people. I mean, they're, they're, they're people just like you and I, and, and that's their job. And, and and so with Randy, I actually had sent the idea to them a couple of years in a row because I had, I've, I've talked to him before. He's a really nice guy, um, just big heart, very open. And they wanted him this year. So I got to reach out to him and he was thrilled. And, um, you know, just... It's like when you talk to somebody who's really passionate about what they do, which is what he does. I mean, he's a CPA, but he's not a CPA. He's a hunter. Um, But he's not just a hunter. He's a conservationist and a do-it-yourself kind of teacher. I think that he has something in him that people are um, kind of, they they lean towards him because he's kind of got that. He's he's the OG of the public lands hunting in a way, and people respect that. But he's also down down to earth and not going to, try and act like he's like, well, look at, you know, he's always very respectful. Um, But that story I wanted to take a little bit further because I thought it would be kind of cool to have some of his peers in in the industry uh, weigh in. So that's why I brought in the other side guys. Like I, I reached out to Remy again and uh, Mark Kenyon's in that and Brady Miller's in that and and good old Giannis uh, for meat eaters in that. So, um, that was just fun. That was fun for me. Like I got that assignment. I was like, well, I already, I like Randy and I want to tell it. I want to give the full picture of what his legacy really is. And I think it came across well. Yeah. It's amazing. That's so cool. I like your approach about coming at it from, um, 
kind of this humanistic side too around these people about who they are and like talking to their peers or talking to their siblings. Um, you know, Randy Newberg is such a nice guy, like you said, and I've met him a few times mm-hmm. at different um, national conservation um, events. And he is just the same, like he is just so approachable. Mm-hmm. He's such a good ambassador for the outdoors and he gives back so much um, that I think that, you know, picking somebody like that to feature is, um, is really perfect. Was there anything um, as you work through that piece that you learned um, that was like new or unexpected or that surprised you about Randy? I mean, not a whole lot, only because I've talked to him a few times. Um, I like hearing people's stories about him, like uh, peripheral side stories, like when he took um, Mark Kenyon hunting and like they didn't find anything and they didn't do anything, but they spent like three days out there and it was like super fun. I mean, or you know, Brady saying that, like, you know, Randy's saying if people if people knew what this javelina tasted like, you know, they would they would definitely be extinct because they're so good. And they're like, you know, people don't think about things like that. And I just I love the little quirky things that that pull his personality out instead of always just being the, you know, this the person that you're learning from, I guess. And, and how he, Randy was um, equally he felt that uh, the hunting lessons were as equally important to the hunting community as the ones on public policy and how to talk to you legislators about hunting and the outdoors and why that's important. Um, things that people aren't primed to speak about unless they have the knowledge of it. And it it comes from not just the ethical side of things, but from policy and understanding of how laws are made. And so he does like other things that he says are not as popular as his hunting videos, but he, I think he kind of looks at it as a, a whole picture, like, life lesson plan, I guess, for those that are interested in, you know, keeping the outdoors there for everyone to enjoy. Yeah, definitely. Because there's a lot of pieces there that have to come into that puzzle to keep this right. So this conservation model that we have isn't an accident and it's not um, something that just falls into place. It's very like it's very structured. It's Mm -hmm. happened over time. There's funding, there's policy there's public involvement, right? So I think he threads the needle pretty well on all of that because um, I think he has his personality and Remy Warren too, mm-hmm. uh, that I think they can, people, like you're talking about the quirks. Um, and I was just talking to my friend about this um, last week about um, how people in the hunting community, like how we portray ourselves around social or what, you know, there's like there's branding and all this stuff, yeah. but finding authenticity in our humanity around it so that people can really connect with these people, you know? So um, connecting in terms of like this lifestyle might be interesting to me and I haven't really explored it yet, but I'm curious about my food, but also around the community and the, and the individuals of like, okay, this person seems real to me. Mm -hmm. And I think I can like, it helps me kind of understand where they're coming from when they're starting to talk about these things that you're talking about with policy and conservation and all of that, you know, finding that authenticity and humanity is, um, is really important. Um, and, and so like, if you, you know, you talk about that, like with your, your outdoor writing and what do you like, do you ever have conversations with friends maybe because you you grew up in Detroit or around Michigan and like for people that are outside of the outdoor space, but now you're writing these pieces about outdoor people like Remy Warren and, and Randy. Um, like how do you f- have conversations? Do, do your friends ask you about stuff like that? About um, like when they ask about hunting, 
um, like how do you approach those conversations if somebody's just not familiar with it or like what's your perspective on on having a conversation with somebody that's curious but just really doesn't know much about it yeah I don't I feel like there's so much not known and like I didn't grow up in a hunting family um, my uncle I think hunted but I'd have to confirm that I'm not 100% sure sure, because it it wasn't something that was discussed um and and you know your food isn't really discussed I think that that really came full circle when the local vora movement really kind of started taking steam and it was aimed at like you know meat and then people would start saying well what about you know uh, why is a cow better than a deer or whatever you know and around that time is is, I well I met my husband a few years before that but he's he did grow up in a hunting family and I was interested, but I wasn't interested. Does that make sense? Um, just because totally makes sense. Yep. Just because I had no understanding of it, I, I wasn't squeamish about it, and I wasn't squeamish about meat or where it came from, or even, but like, I mean, even fishing, I didn't do that as a kid. And so, just coming from a, a zero background, and then all of a sudden, I'm writing about uh, all these things. It, for me, I learned something talking to every single one of these people. Um, I have dabbled in bow hunting. I have gone, you know, uh, a little bit of upland bird hunting. It's, it's for me, I would do it more if I had time. And, and, and since I live in, we live with no um, outside support, but the two of us and our daughter um, until she wants to go with us or she's older, it's, it's really just, you know, we just don't have time right now. But when people ask me that, and that has come up in conversation because well, a couple a couple reasons. One, I have new neighbors, and they found out what I do for a living, and they asked me if I was a hunter, and I said not exactly. Um, and I have a new, I have a literary agent, and she did tell me that you know I would be asked these kinds of questions in the future, and I have no problem answering them. I guess my simple my simple answer would be I see nothing wrong with it uh, if you're taking enough of an animal to you know. Uh, feed your family, fill your freezer, even donate it to other places. Um, I I would definitely say I'm more from the meat eating side of the hunting uh, community rather than the trophy. Although I guess at the same point, if you've been doing it long enough, I can understand both sides uh, of the, of the equation. I like when people use as much of the animal as they can. Um, But then from my perspective, I also think that since I, I don't have the option to do that right now, just because of time and abilities, and I'd also need to go out with somebody and kind of rehome what I had initially learned. Uh, anyway, um, that's why I, you know, buy my stuff directly from the farmer here. I don't know if there's a, dif- a huge difference between how they raise their uh, cattle versus the cattle that I buy at the grocery store that says it's grass fed. I mean, I can see their, their cattle. I can see how they raise it. I like the direct purchase from a farmer themselves. And so it's like, it's, it's like, I can't, I'm not hunting my meat, but I'm supporting somebody that's growing my meat. Um, And I kind of look at that as kind of the same answer is that as long as you have the connection and you can see where it's coming from, it's, it's all kind of part of the same equation. It's, it it all kind of comes from the same place, I guess. It all, yeah, that is so well said. It all does kind of come from the same place. And, And I think it's about those connections, right? So, like you brought up such a great point about that. And and I think the reality is, is for most people, the vast majority of Americans, uh, time is a big issue. It's like, okay, where you are in life and family and work and careers. And so I think the statistic is something like, I don't know, 5% of Americans hunt. It's not that many, but um, you, you know, there is a 
there's a major time element to that and there's a major lifestyle element to that. And for people that have those options, it's great. Um, for us, you know, I grew up in a hunting family because I grew up here in the Adirondacks and so still live in a position where I can just go out and do that. Um, although it's gotten a lot harder with um, being a parent and with being in grad school and trying to work. And that's given me a much better appreciation for time um, because it just, as you get into those commitments, it just like time is, is a major thing. Um, and so like, I think like what you're saying, Kristen, about um, coming into like making connections with your food um, and having multiple paths to do that mm-hmm. is such an important part of the conversation. And like, I think that's kind of like the spirit of this whole podcast around outdoor feast and modern carnivore in general. It's just like, like looking at it kind of from a lifestyle standpoint and looking at it in terms of um, how, how can we forward those connections or help people um, create those connections, you know, so supporting local farmers, um, you know, uh, buying local food, um, all of that stuff, I think falls into the same sphere of of like economy so to speak when it comes around um you know food yeah no that's kind of how i feel too so it's like if i if i can do that side of it you know i do and maybe you know this new property we actually have space now where we can actually you know use our bows at least for practice which i our last house no <laughs> it wasn't a <laughs> And that was that was a really big hiccup coming, you know, uh, in Vermont. Vermont is where I picked up a bow and 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 kind of tried tried to hunt the elusive Vermont whitetail, which does not happen. I mean, my husband got one, but I mean, he's also got a lot of experience. And that is tough hunting (laughs) in Vermont. For people outside of this area, it is not easy. Mm -hmm. There are not very many deer, right? No, no. I mean, that Mm -hmm. is true. The elusive whitetail in in Vermont. And then, you know, we're in New York now, but, um, you know. We, we didn't have a, where we could just walk out our door and, and go and, and having a young child and being without other people to take care of them. And, and, and to be honest, I would like to go, if we're going to go hunt, uh, just from my experience level, I would like to go with somebody like my husband that can then tell me what I'm, when I should do what I'm doing and stuff like that. Instead of me just kind of winging it because I like, you know, as we all know, you don't want to do something that would hurt uh, or be unethical in any way. So definitely yeah absolutely um and and up there where you're moved you said you just moved into a new place so um do you have a room for a big garden at your place now or is that um nope i have room for a garden that is going to be here this spring i cannot wait yep yep that's really cool we have container gardens at our house so I live, my wife and I live in what's basically a glacial esker. It's like sand and white pines and boulders. You know, that's like the least hospitable place to have a garden. Uh, We have been composting for the better part of 15 years trying to build soils. Uh, But we had this year, uh, so we have these little container gardens out back. Um, The tomatoes were amazing. So like we've gotten into this like tomato squash, um, peas, you know, whatever, just stuff like that, that can be good summer vegetables. We haven't been able to get into like bigger, like wholesale kind of like, you know, when I was growing up, I was telling you about my dad. I mean, I can remember he, him and my stepmom had like potato, they had a separate potato garden. Mm -hmm. Um, they had corn, like they had shell beans. And so we spent the better part of late August as kids helping them prep all that stuff for um, canning, like my stepmom canned shell beans and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember like 
picking potato bugs until I was like blue in the face. Like there's these little potato bugs on the plants. Um, so we don't have that level of um, garden, but it's really cool uh, to have a small garden nonetheless. It is. It is. I'm looking forward to having a little bit more space here and being able to not be so constricted. Yeah, definitely. And, and so you've been writing a lot here. I mean, you're, you, I love your Twitter account and you know, you're up early at 5am writing. So what's that all like? Do you find, what are your tips for getting up and being able to write at 5am? I'm not lucid enough to be able to do that. So what's your hack? Um, well, I have it. Um, and then, you know, I, there, I do two different types of writing, you know, I writing for me, I, I'm just finished a manuscript that I hope to give to my agent at, uh, by, by Thanksgiving after it goes through a few revisions. That's my writing. That has nothing to do with the assignments that I have to work on during, during the day. And so, or before the rest of the day's distractions kind of, you know, catch up with you. So I can get up, have my coffee. Occasionally my cat is with me and, you know, you just, you have quiet, you don't have to, no one's up yet. Uh, and just, don't have to think about anything but what you wanted to do, you know, what, you, what you're putting on the page for yourself. Uh, no one's really like looking over your shoulder to make sure you hit that word count or, you know, make sure you quote somebody. So that's kind of where that comes from. And I actually slept in since, uh, and sleeping in for me is like big, you know, 545, 6 o'clock. But um, because I finished the second manuscript, and I'm letting it sit uh, for, I have an assignment I have to turn in. So I'm letting it sit until I turn that in. Um, so then I'll be up at 5am reading it. So I don't, <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I hear you saying is it's, you, you develop, you've developed the habit and the work ethic around it. You get up in the morning, you have time and space to do it, right? You don't have distractions. Exactly. And so it's that time of day when you can actually get some work done and get into it and focus, um, which I can, I can totally relate to that. And, and when you're talking, um, so do you do various assignments? Like when you, talk about your, you know, you've got your personal writing and then you've got your assignments and part of those assignments are outdoor writing, but are, do you do other stuff other than outdoor writing for your normal yeah. work yeah. assignments? Um, so yes. Yeah. So like I, right now, you know, I, I mainly write within outdoors, adventure, sustainable ag, but then there's always other side things and I'm not pitching ideas as much as I used to be um, just because of relationships I've built with uh, places. Um, right now I do uh, go hunts uh, daily news item every day. So you'll see me do that. Um, I also do a lot of the editing and stuff for their, their website. So that's, that counts as work, work. That's cool. I, so I didn't know that. That's great. I, I like go hunt a lot, but I didn't pick up on the yeah. fact that you were working with them. That's yeah. awesome. And I've been doing stuff for Free Range American and I do stuff for other uh, places. Um, and then I do social media production for uh, three different campaigns for American public media groups. So I'm doing that. And it's so it's, you know, it's still it's it's still writing because you're doing content in, you know, social form. And then right now I have a article I'm working on uh, about uh, some three women in, in leadership positions in NASA uh, right now that uh, is for USA Today. Uh, I'm working on that. And. I also do some stuff for a small farming company, uh, more like sustainable ag profiles and things like that. So, I mean, it's like I'm kind of all over the place and it, it changes and it keeps it keeps me interested in what I'm doing. Hey, listeners, this is Mark, and I hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast. I just wanted to let you know that in the coming days, 
we're going to open up registration for our Upland bird hunting course on Hunting Camp Live. And this could be your opportunity to take part in a self-paced online masterclass with support from live interactive webinars and our outdoor mentor community. If this sounds like it might be something for you or maybe a friend who's been thinking about starting to hunt, just go to modcarn.com forward slash Upland Birds to get more information. Now there's a limited class size, so make sure you check it out today so you can reserve your spot. Now back to the podcast. Uh, what are you seeing? Uh, sustainable ag is something that's really interesting. Um, I think uh, people in the outdoors might like to hear a little more about that. So when you talk sustainable ag, like what kind of trends are you seeing that you're writing about or that catch your mind that you think are interesting? Well, I mean, like it's a lot of the soil health, cover crops, carbon farming. That's Those are like the buzzwords right now. Uh, and one of the podcasts I work on is a sustainable ag podcast. So we get I get the information, you know, on, on what's current there, you know, a lot of ag precision and um, AI and stuff like that in agriculture now. But mostly it's kind of tried and true conservation uh, and keeping the land going because, I mean, you know, we're not going to get any more land, so we might as well keep it healthy. Yeah. No doubt. It's uh, very succinctly put. And, you know, I was watching, this was a grad school assignment recently, but um, I wish I could remember the name of this, but it was a really cool Netflix uh, documentary. Um, Woody Harrelson was involved in it. Did you you see that? I know what you're talking about. I can't think of what it is either. It's like, it's not rooted, but it was, um, it was something along those lines. I'll have to dig it up and put a link in the show notes because it was really cool. And it's talking exactly about what you're mm-hmm. like referring to with soil health and cover crops. And it was really poignant in the fact that like they did a really good job. Like there was just like one particular farm where there was like free range farming and they were doing all this and you could like, here's the snapshot of what this looks like, this ecosystem. And then like, here's what's happening over, you know, down the road mm-hmm. and the visual um, juxtaposition of that was really cool. And I thought it was powerful. You know, it's like, you yeah. look at that and you're like, okay, that works. Um, so, you, you know, I think that, you know, it's just an interesting thing. And one thing I've been kind of, um, I don't know, I've been interested in it from a, from a school standpoint is like scaling that stuff. Like how do, is it like, can we find ways to scale regenerative ag in a way that we can really like transform the system that we've got right now, you know? And there was a piece, uh, this is in Brazil, but there was this company in Brazil that's supplying half of all of Brazil's eggs through, through a regenerative kind of approach like this. Like, so they have completely transformed it. They scaled it out. Half of all of Brazil's organic eggs um, coming out of this one operation. And they're, they're working on it kind of on a, uh, specifically for models um, to be able to scale like that, to be able to uh, make this transformation um, that, that we might be able to um, benefit from. So anyway, that's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, no, it is. That's very cool. Yeah. And so um, anything else that you want to talk about? Like we've been dabbling around lifestyle in your writing and, you know, farming and chickens and everything. Um Anything particular? <laughs> Not that I think of. I don't know. Um, I think we've kind of covered a lot of the basics. Um, I guess the one thing, uh, if, if my husband gets uh, students that ask him questions about writing, and he always sends them my, my way um, because 
obviously this is a second career for me and I've done pretty good uh, with it snowballing as it has. And their biggest question is always, you know, how do I get started or um, how, how, and it's like, you just, you just, you have to just have that motivation um, to try uh, and know that editors don't expect you to be um, this amazing writer if you're, you know, just starting out. But if you have a great idea and you can prove that you can write, at least within that first paragraph that you're pitching to them, um, usually they'll give you a chance. And that's really what you're after. You just need that first foot in the door, the first chance somewhere. And then also to not take rejection personally. Rejection is a subjective thing 99% of the time. Um, unless you're, you know, pitching to some uh, publication that has nothing to do with the idea that you're pitching, most of the time it's because they just don't have the funding to pay you. They don't, it doesn't fit into the theme or it's just that editor doesn't really particularly like that idea, but it has nothing actually to do with your idea. Um, my first article uh, that got me going was rejected like 25 times or more. Um, and eventually it went viral. So you just have to have that, I don't know, self-motivation. And I think that that comes again to the 5 a.m. writing. It's my self-motivation. I, I really want to write a book. I want it on a shelf. I want other people to be able to read it and check it out at the library. I don't care if they buy it. I mean, buying it would be nice, but I have to get it published first. But my point being, it's always been my goal. And I think that the self-motivation that goes with those things, those are intrinsic. And all of us, you just have to find what yours is. And so that is mine. Yeah, that's really well said, Kristen. Thanks for sharing that encouragement. Um, folks, don't give up if that's if that's something that um, that you really want to do. If writing is important to you and you find a lot of benefit from that, just keep at it. Keep working at it. Don't give up. Um, you know, it's funny. I like. I've been writing a ton for grad school projects here. It's, a, it's like a non-thesis program, but it's like a ton of writing. So we're writing a whole bunch every single week and it's an 18 month program. And so I feel like my writing has become, it changes your writing style, right? So like academically, it's like beating out the lyricalness of my, my writing. So it's like, it's like, like I've become so transactional about stuff. It's like, I don't know. It's like, I, I read this stuff and I'm like, okay, that's an essay. That'll get a good grade, but I don't know. It's not very inspiring. So <laughs> it's hard to put the other hat back on and, and, you know, look at things from a more poetic or, you know, reflective kind of way, but um, it's working. So hopefully someday I can get back to that. <laughs> so, okay. So, and, and you're working on your manuscript. Um, any plans, like what's, what's your plans for that? Are you think in like early 2022 or like for a release on that or? Oh gosh. So that, yeah, this is a totally different market than like doing anything for a popular media. Uh, mm -hmm. If, 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 big ifs. This uh, gets uh, any interest from somewhere. I'm guessing it wouldn't be out until 2023, maybe. 2020. Yeah, it's just it's a very long lead time for everything, from what I understand. It takes time to get that stuff out. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And where can people follow you and find you? You're on Instagram, right? And you're on Twitter. I'm on Instagram at Kristen underscore a underscore Schmidt, and Twitter at Kristen underscore Schmidt. And. Oh. I also have a website, which is kristenschmidt.com. 
All right, folks. So we'll put that stuff in the show notes, Kristen. And and, um, I really appreciate you being on the podcast today. It's a fun conversation and it's really nice catching up with you and um, best wishes in your new place up there in Northern New York. Yeah. Thanks so much, Todd. It's, it was, this is fun. I appreciate being on your show. Thanks for asking me. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.